You may be surprised to know this about me, but sometimes my wife will say something to me and I don't hear a single word of it. Sometimes I say something to my wife and she hears something completely different than what I intended. Sometimes she hears three things completely different than what I intended. Does anybody share this experience? Marriage has long been a metaphor for our relationship with God. All the way back to the Exodus story, God took the chosen people and made them his bride. The Christian scriptures, when we get to them, we read that Jesus is our bridegroom and that we are the bride of Christ. So with marriage as our metaphor, we might offer ourselves a little bit of grace when it seems that our communication with God seems a lot like our communication with our spouse. Sometimes we might read a passage or hear a scripture and we'll hear different things or nothing at all. The psalm, uh, psalmist of the 62nd Psalm even writes a funny little phrase. In the 11th verse of the, of the 62nd Psalm, it says, One thing God has spoken, but two things I've heard. Our Hebraic brothers and sisters have a sort of tongue-in-cheek joke about understanding and interpreting the meaning of the scriptures. They say that when two rabbis discuss the meaning of the text, there are always three opinions. A simple joke does contain a little bit of truth. Throughout the history of the people of faith, we've continually come up with different interpretations, different meanings when we come to the same scripture texts. Even personally, when we read a text that we may have read a year ago or years before that and we think we know what it means, we may read it once again and find that it means something completely different for us in a different context. There are, of course, different ways that we can respond to this reality. For some of us, these differences cause a bit of anxiety. And for those of us like this, we might respond like the Pharisees in this passage and insist that this one way, this one way of understanding and interpreting the Bible is the singular correct way. But we could also open ourselves. We can acknowledge that our differences exist and we can try to mine the value of a diverse understanding of this library of books that itself contains many, many different voices from many, many different contexts. While these particular Pharisees in our story this morning do provide a narrative counterpoint, this latter approach... This approach of offering grace to difference has long been the tradition of our Jewish brothers and sisters, and it's even been our tradition for many years, though sometimes it does not seem to be so. The Jewish sages even have a phrase for this experience. They say that every scripture has 70 faces. Every verse of scripture is like a gem, like a diamond that has been cut to have 70 faces. You could hold this gem up, you can turn it, you can look at it from different directions. You'll see the light reflecting and refracting in different ways. But what we'll know is that through this gem, all of that light is still from the same source. And when I hold up a gem to you, when I talk about a scripture, you naturally see it from a different angle that I'm seeing it from. 
You see this scripture, this gem differently than I see it. Our scripture, our gem this morning is certainly multifaceted. The many interpretations of these words give voice to these many different facets. I want to preface uh, what we read this morning a little bit. In the verses just before the ones that we read, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they demand to know why his disciples forsake the tradition of washing their hands. Jesus responds to these Pharisees directly by calling out their hypocrisy. He even turns their questioning back on them, asking why they refuse to honor the love and the law of God for the sake of their tradition. And then as the passage that we read, uh, that we read begins, Jesus turns his attention not just to the Pharisees, but to the crowds that surround them. And he takes an opportunity to teach them what it is that truly makes a person unclean. And this is what Jesus says. It's not what goes in the mouth that defiles. It's that which comes out of the mouth. For what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart and an unhealthy heart leads to all kinds of destructive behaviors. It leads to insults and dehumanizing language and actions. Jesus, after this episode with the crowds, is tired once again and he withdraws for solitude, something that he does commonly in the Gospels. But as is the typical pattern, as Jesus seeks that refuge of relaxation and rest, someone finds him, someone in need. This time in this story, it's a Canaanite woman. It's a woman belonging to one of the people groups that have long been an enemy to the Jewish people. And this woman is desperate, acknowledging Jesus even by the name of those Jewish people's famous king, son of David. This woman's daughter is being tormented by a demon, and this woman seeks out a Jew for aid. And the way that Jesus responds to this woman is plainly shocking. This woman shouts, Lord, have mercy on me. And the text tells us that Jesus ignores her. She continues to cry out for help, and Jesus' disciples decide that they want to send her away. Jesus appears to agree with this. He says that his mission is only to the lost sheep of Israel. But this woman persists. She prostrates herself in front of this man, and she begs for mercy for this child that she loves. And Jesus again responds. It's not right to take the food from the children of God and throw it to the dogs. Jesus calls this woman and people like her mere animals. The woman, though, is unfazed. She quickly turns Jesus' words back on him, just as Jesus had done moments before with the Pharisees. She says that even dogs eat scraps from the table of the master. This table, this food on the table does not belong to the children or to the dogs, but to the master of the house. This is what finally convinces Jesus. And he closes the scene by praising this woman's faith and healing her daughter. My interpretive question when I come to this passage is, what on earth is going on here? 
This is not how I imagine the embodiment of God to behave towards somebody in need. Jesus slams the Pharisees for being hypocrites, for being concerned with their tradition and with their boundaries. He calls them out for insulting language and lack of generosity and grace. And then in the very next scene, Jesus, confronted by an unclean Gentile woman, appears to be more concerned with the tradition that God's gifts are only for one people. He doubles down by calling this woman and her daughter mere dogs. And so my question is, what? What? Why? So let's examine the gym. There's two most common ways that people read this text. And I think there's merit to both of them, but I hope to add to that today. For some people, they pick up this text, they pick up this scripture, this gym, and they look at it, and they see that Jesus is testing this woman that Jesus is testing this woman's faith. His intention is to determine the depth of her trust and her tenacity in chasing down the healing that she knows that this man can provide. When this woman continues to argue with Jesus, she follows in a long line of people that have negotiated with God, and she wins. She succeeds. She provides an example of courage and faithfulness. And throughout the gospel, we see that Jesus' actual disciples continue to show a lack of faith. And yet this woman provides the example of faithfulness that we're looking for. Her great faith comes from her great love for her daughter and leads to the healing of her loved one. But there is another angle to this gem. Other people look at this scripture and they see that this passage is an example of the very human part of Jesus learning more about a messianic mission. That the woman in this passage helps Jesus to understand his task more. Traditionally, the understanding was that God would save Israel first. That God would restore the kingdom to Israel and it's only after that that the Gentiles would be enfolded. But this woman subverts that story. And from this angle, this woman helps Jesus understand that his mission is wider than he initially thought. And immediately after this story, we find that Jesus goes into a Gentile territory and feeds 4,000 people. There are passages in Scripture that support this view. In Luke, it says that Jesus grows in wisdom. And the writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus learns obedience. This interpretation of the scripture suggests that Jesus grows just like we do. That his understanding of his vocation grows. These two interpretations, like I said, are the most common, but I want to offer one more that I've discovered. Perhaps this story isn't just to tell us about how Jesus tests this woman, or even how this woman helps to teach Jesus. Perhaps the gospel writer, perhaps Matthew includes this story because his intention is to teach his reader, to instruct us. In Matthew's gospel, there are two stories of a Gentile coming to Jesus seeking aid, seeking mercy for somebody that they love. And this other story is found way back in chapter 8 in Matthew, but there are so many parallels to that story in this one that Matthew wants us to read them together. 
Both stories are about Gentiles. One of them is a Roman centurion. And the other one is a lowly Canaanite woman. Both stories, the Gentile asks for healing for someone that they care about and that person is not present. In both stories, the Gentile makes an appeal to the authority of the God of Israel. In both stories, Jesus praises the faith, faith of this Gentile and then grants their wish. And in both stories, Jesus causes tradi- crosses tr- traditional and cultural boundaries to heal the people that need healing. But he only does this after a moment of hesitation. He takes a moment to consider what is happening. This moment, this space that Jesus takes, this hesitation on Jesus' part summons the reader, summons us to consider our own hesitation in offering to extend grace. You may remember that a few weeks ago, we talked about Matthew's audience. Matthew's audience were people that were traumatized by the absolute destruction of their homes and their way of faith. And we talked about one of the responses that some of those people had. One of those responses was to blame the tragedy on lax morality. We didn't keep the boundaries strong enough. These people wanted to double down on enforcing the law in order to save themselves. They wanted to maintain the boundaries. But in this passage, Jesus says that a blind following of the law, an unquestioning following of tradition is not the embodiment of faith. It's not an embodiment of a command to love and it is not an embodiment of the God that commands such love. The Pharisees in this passage represent this response. These Pharisees had taken a language of religion, a story of liberation, and they turned it into a faith of shackles. The story that we read this morning and the story of the centurion call us to challenge the boundaries that we keep placing on ourselves and on the grace that we extend to the world around us. While we may say that we welcome all people into the full life of the church, sometimes I have to wonder if we really mean it. The Methodist church is known for saying that we have open doors and open hearts and open minds, but sometimes we don't show that. Nearly 250 years ago, the Methodist church officially started in America at what was called the Christmas Conference. At that conference, there were two black men in attendance, a man named Richard Allen and a man named Black Henry Hoosier. Both of these men were gifted and amazing preachers. Harry Hoosier would go on to be known as one of the most gifted preachers of the Second Great Awakening. But because of the race of these men, neither of them were given vote at this conference. Richard Allen would go on to begin a church in Philadelphia. But because of his white superiors, he was never given the ability to own his own property and he was never given a space to let his congregation worship alone. His congregation was forced to meet at five in the morning or earlier if they wanted to meet indoors and if they didn't, they had to do it somewhere else. 
Allen eventually withdrew his church from St. George's Methodist and partnered with four other African-American churches to found what is today called the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And Richard Allen became its first bishop. Because of our tradition, because of our tradition of racism, the Methodist church and the kingdom of God suffered. Because of our inability to welcome Allen and to welcome his church into the full life of our church, we split. Perhaps we didn't take long enough to hesitate and consider what we were doing. Just a few years later, in 1804, a young black woman named Jarena Lee heard this same Bishop Allen preach. And she gave her life to Christ. Ms. Lee quickly discerned that she had a calling to preach, but when she revealed this calling to Bishop Allen, he refused to ordain a woman. For 12 years, Ms. Lee struggled so badly in trying to find a place in the church that she suffered from depression and considered suicide. But just as the Canaanite woman did with Jesus, Jarena persisted. She preached everywhere that she could, in parks, open fields, in her own home. And one Sunday, a preacher in church began to flag a little bit. He was getting tired. And so Jarena Lee stood up and finished the sermon for him. Bishop Allen was in attendance that day and changed his mind. The Reverend Jarena Lee was the first ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the first in a long line of powerful women preachers in that tradition. Because of our tradition of sexism, we again caused the church and the kingdom of heaven to suffer, and we caused a real human being to suffer. This Canaanite woman, she cries out for mercy, and Jesus pauses for a moment for us. For us to consider what exactly would we do? Would we extend the grace? Would we send her away? Would we say that because of her identity, the promises of God do not belong to her? There is a world, a world of people crying out for mercy. And despite our own inability to control our language, despite our own inability to welcome people, they still come to us for mercy. Despite the insults and the refusals and the separations, they still want to be a part of what we know our God is doing through us. This, my friends, is truly great faith. This is a faith that's born of great love and a faith that can heal us and heal the world around us. So may we hear these cries of mercy and may we take just a moment to consider them. May we extend and offer grace and may we learn from our traditions but not hold on to them so tightly that we refuse to move on. In the name of the God who created each of us and the Son who welcomes each of us and the Spirit who abides in each of us. Amen.